In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Please be seated. Woman is the glory of man. So wrote St. Paul, who only in these depraved and latter days has been maligned as a misogynist. It was not outside of paradise that God formed the woman, but inside of it. It was not from some other nature that God fashioned the woman, but from the nature of the man himself. There is no woman without man, and subsequently no man without woman. Yet the relationship between man and woman is neither identical nor in itself symmetrical. It is not man who completes woman, nor woman who completes man. The belief is idolatrous, and the attempt is disastrous. Any such completion of man or woman may only be found in God. Man and woman may indeed become one flesh, and yet the scriptures say, the body is meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Man and woman may indeed become one flesh, and yet never do they become one spirit. For the one who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. False belief in soulmates and other heresies of romanticism have already destroyed countless marriages and rendered even more of them deeply dysfunctional. To say nothing of those who will never become married, precisely because the impossible tenets of romanticism have wittingly or unwittingly been absorbed. And likewise, because the disastrous fallout in the form of divorce and broken homes is so easily and readily observed. Man was not made in the likeness of woman, nor woman in the likeness of man, but both were made in the likeness of God. Contrary to the spiritual plague that is feminism, woman does not find her value in becoming more like man. In fact, that is the true misogyny, only labeled as its opposite. The relationship between man and woman is neither identical, that is, man and woman are neither the same nor are they interchangeable, nor is the relationship between them in itself symmetrical. Man was not made for the woman, but the woman for man. Nor is man the glory of the woman, but woman is the glory of man. If you take umbrage with those last two lines, do note that they're direct quotations of Scripture. <laughs> the denial of these things does not lead to the elevation of woman, but to the denigration of woman. 
to the heresy of feminism and its sacrament of abortion, to gender confusion and LGBT madness, to all that is unnatural and contrary to the goodwill and good ordering of God. The church's failure to teach and willful distortion of what the scriptures actually say has only served as a catalyst. The feminization of the pastoral office is not only apparent in the sinful aberration of so-called women pastors, but also in male pastors so effeminized that they fear the wrath of wicked women more than they fear God, fear being called a misogynist or a bigot more than they fear God whose word they distort. The unique creativity of God, the exquisite differences between man and woman as articulated in his word, along with his blessed ordering of creation, are all cause for deepest reflection and for joyous praise. God is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of man. Man is the head of woman. In the love and self-sacrifice of man for woman, we glimpse the love of Christ for his church. In the respect and submission of woman to man, we glimpse the love of the church for Christ. No wonder the devil cannot stand marriage and attacks it every chance he can. In it, he sees Jesus. No wonder the devil despises children and wants them murdered in the womb and denied holy baptism. Children remind him of the child and son of God who came that we might also be sons and children of God. In Christ, there is no male or female. That is obviously true. And yet, it is not true in such a way that males cease to be males or females cease to be females. Nor is it true in such a way that God's creation is destroyed. The asymmetry between man and woman, so beautiful in creation, extends even to the temptation and fall. The sin of the man and the sin of the woman were not, in fact, the same, a point the scriptures make repeatedly and make abundantly clear. The man was not deceived as the woman was. The woman was deceived into obeying the voice of the serpent rather than the voice of God. But not so the man. The man chose to obey the voice of the woman rather than the voice of God. In fact, this is precisely what God explicitly states in his curse against the man. This comes to you precisely because you, O oh man, listen to the woman rather than to me. In the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, it is indicative 
that in the first words of the man after the fall and curse, he calls the woman Zoe, life, the very thing that our Lord Jesus will say that he is. And likewise, in the very first words of the woman after the fall and curse, she calls her child the Lord, the very thing our Lord Jesus will say that he is. Fallen man looks to the woman to be his savior, and fallen woman looks to her children. There is more wisdom in this single line of scripture than in all worldly counseling combined. The creation of man and woman is not the same. The sins of the first man and the first woman were not the same, and the consequences are not the same either. Indeed, if we lose the specific contours of our creation and our fall, we will lose the specific contours of our redemption. We will have a distorted view of man and woman, a distorted view of ourselves and the world. Why is it that the Lord says to the serpent that the offspring of the woman will be the one to crush the serpent's head? Why not the offspring of the man? Why not the offspring of both? Because of the virgin birth, we answer. But why must there be a virgin birth in the first place? Why must the savior of our race come from God through woman and through woman alone? Since man fell through what woman gave him, man must be restored through what woman gives him. The fruit that the woman gave to man at first brought death. And thus the woman must bring forth new fruit and give it to the man that he might live. So the cry of Elizabeth to Mary in our gospel text today, blessed is the fruit of your womb. The fruit of Eve brought death. The fruit of Mary brings life. Here too we see why our Lord addresses Mary as woman and refers to her as the woman. St. Paul does the same in our, in our epistle text this morning. God sent forth his son born of woman. We are to see in Mary an antidote to Eve. The unique participation of woman in the fall countered by the unique participation of woman in redemption. Further contrast between Eve and Mary makes this even more apparent. The firstborn offspring of Eve, the fruit of her womb, was literally a murderer, the first to bring forth death. While the firstborn and offspring of Mary, the fruit of her womb, literally restores men from death, raising them from the grave, foreshadowing his even greater work, 
the laying down of his own life, that our race might have life once more. The bruising of his heel, the crushing of the serpent's head. Mary was known by God and chosen by God before the foundation of the world. God knew the sword of sorrow that would pierce her heart and also that in light of this very suffering, all generations would come to call her blessed. What is true of Mary is by extension true for all of us. Before the foundation of the world, God knew you and chose you to be his own. He knew what sorrows would come upon you and through them what glories he would bestow. Male he made you or female, celibate he made you or fit for marriage, barrenness he laid upon you or the procreation of children. Nothing is by accident. The word that knew Mary before the foundation of the world came to her in time, and she became pregnant with the word made flesh, the savior of our world. So too, the word that knew you before the foundation of the world comes to you in time, and he makes his home within you. That word comes to you proclaiming that your sins are forgiven, your guilt is removed. That word comes to you bringing healing and restoration to the order of creation. He through whom the heavens and the earth were made is not ashamed to take on our flesh that we might be his own, nor is he ashamed of you to dwell with you and be your savior. In love, he cleanses your sins with his own blood and covers them with the glories of his grace. In love, he transforms your sorrows into that which you will overcome, your sufferings into glories, and this not by your own reason or strength, wisdom or willpower, but by his gracious ordaining, by the endurance of the faith he has given to you as a gift, that faith which is nothing less than faith in him. In love, our Lord Jesus calls you back to your creator, to the wholeness and to the wholesomeness of his creation. From Mary, we learn that the true nature of our lives is to magnify the Lord, to rejoice in God our Savior, who does indeed have mercy on those who fear him, who does indeed bring down the mighty from their thrones, but exalts the lowly. We learn from Mary to be exactly what God has given us to be and to rejoice in all that our God has done. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.